this week on a lively experiment. Who's in and who's out in the governor's race? And now a suddenly coveted open congressional seat. And should Rhode Island change the way it elects its candidates? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Leanne Senek, National Committee Woman for the Rhode Island Republican Party, attorney and former prosecutor Eva Marie Mancuso, and Boston Globe columnist Dan McGowan. Welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel, and we appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. We may run out of room and ink on the political scorecard for two key races by the time it's time for the candidates to file papers later this year. State Treasurer Seth Magaziner, an early candidate for governor, announced Wednesday that he instead would join the growing field of candidates trying to replace Jim Langevin when he leaves his second congressional seat next year. Dan, let me begin with you. The headline six hours before Seth announced was, in your column, Seth Magaziner should stay out of the race for Congress. He's clearly not taking your advice. Yeah, nobody listens to me ever. <laughs> I always say they should listen, listen, listen. But no, you know, I, I honestly, I, I still feel this way. The reason being is, to his credit, Treasurer Magaziner spent the last seven years kind of planning out a governor's race meeting with kind of key people, not just the political people that you're trying to gain support from, but Seth Magaziner is a pretty thoughtful guy. You know, he, he spent a lot of time trying to learn about kind of the intricacies of, you know, real jobs and what's going on in the schools. I sat down- In the school construction In the school construction Katie, stuff. Right? You know, I sat down with him, I don't know, three or four months ago, just having a, you know, a off the record conversation after he, or just a, you know, background discussion, I suppose, uh, after he announced. I was really impressed with sort of how much thought he had put into kind of the problems of state government. And then you come along and you say, this race is easier. I'm going to jump to that. I don't even live in the district. I think it's a really bad look for, for him. Um, and I think he's actually going to be misused. I think he'd be better running for governor and potentially, you know, winning that race. How does this look to the electorate in your mind? Uh, well, he, he needs to get a little bit more excited about running for Congress, and he has to get a stump speech, because I agree with you, Dan, that um, he doesn't seem like his, his heart's in it. Um, as with Dan, he did sit down with me as well. Um, it, actually, I was sitting in a Burger King parking lot because he called me on my cell phone, and I really wanted to chat with him. And about 25 minutes later, I pulled out. He wanted to hear about my... Um, my feelings on education, more importantly on, you know, the K-12, and when I was chair of the board, and really was very interested in the politics behind uh, some of the things that happened in higher education, and he was very, very informed. So a wonk in a good way. Oh, I, you know, I mean, give me a good wonk any day. I mean, that's, I think that's wonderful. Uh, but he needs to get more excited if he's going to run for Congress. I mean, I don't think, um, I don't think he would win the governor's race myself, but at least he was um, his heart and soul was into it. It didn't seem that way when uh, when he made his announcement. It was just like, well, you know, I'm going to do this, and 
I'm kind of term limited and I need a job. You know, that's kind of how I felt about it. So come on, Seth, you know, you got to put a little bit of oomph into, uh, into running for Congress. It's a really important decision and it's really important for the state. Um, you know, we've had Jim Langevin who has, has been a very quiet leader in the Senate, but look at what he's done on cybersecurity and some of the other issues that he really spearheaded on. So it's an important seat and um, you have to be excited to run for it. Is this the Republicans' year? <laughs> well, I haven't had a sit down with Seth Magaziner. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're better off, Leanne, let me tell you. But uh, I, I do agree that I think this is just looking like a political opportunity for him. Um, maybe his numbers weren't looking so great in the governor's race, in the primary, so he's looking at where he can actually go to get elected. And basically, he came out and said that. He's running because they don't want this seat to fall into Republican hands. So they understand the, the their gerrymandering in the past has made CD2 a little more conservative than CD1. And there is a good chance that a Republican running with name recognition, with support um, and some fundraising, they could actually take that seat. Got anybody in mind? I do. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much any Republican would be better than a Democrat in the spot because I think it's going to be an important race looking nationally if the Republicans take the, the House back. Um, this wouldn't be the seat that would make that make or break that. It's not going to be the seat that's going to put us over the, the majority. But to have a, a person in the majority party in that thing would, would be beneficial to Rhode Island rather than having a freshman Democrat part of the machine there that would be in the minority party. At that well, point. just picture this next year, uh, or, or you know, November. The the Republicans take the House, and let's say Alan Fung runs, and Alan Fung is the you know wins the race. New York New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, everyone's going to descend on Rhode Island and have the how Rhode Island went red story. That's going to be a real bad look for Democrats here in the state in such a, in a place that's supposed to be so blue. And, and we know that Democrats cross over and vote for Republicans. Yeah. I mean, um, in our state, people vote for the person and the individual and don't look as much at the national picture. So I, too, think that Alan Fung certainly has a shot at this at this seat because he's very likable and um, he has been uh, more moderate than a lot of other Republicans have been on, on some of the issues. Still a little too conservative for me on social issues, but be that as it may, um, I think that he's got a real shot at winning. And he can turn out the base in Cranston. He can turn out uh, a lot of votes in Warwick, um, Johnston, and South County. So I, and he, and has, he has the name recognition. He's done it. And you know, my, my only question about Alan Fung is I, I, I tend to think, and this may be a compliment, maybe not to him, I think the media, I think Democrats tend to like him more than you know, the conservative base. And I think he always has run into that problem of here's this guy who, you know, comes across as very reasonable, moderate, whatever you want to call him. Um, and then he, he always faces pushback within the party of, you know, you're not conservative enough, you don't go far enough. And so will he face a tough primary? I, I'm curious about how that's going to work. Now, what, what about that? You know, Bob Lancey is in already, although, you know, I would consider kind of a second-year candidate if uh, Jessica Dela Cruz gets in. Isn't that always the problem? You have to go conservative or liberal in a, in a, um, in a primary and then go a little bit more to the center. It is, and it'll be the same thing on the Democratic side, That's too. Right. They're going to push them more to the left, too. So it's really going to come down to which of those two ideologies are people going to agree with? And I think people are looking for something more centrist right now. We're so divided in the country, and everyone is either far left or far right. And I think 
we haven't been able to get anywhere with that as far as governing, and it, it's hurt our state, it's hurt the country, and I think people will look at that, too, and think, you know, do we really want to have our candidates push to one side or the other, or do we want someone who's going to govern for all of Rhode Islanders? You know, you know what? This is our first time together. I really like her. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Second Republican that's been on the show that I like. Well, you know what? We make, history we make history every week. <laughs> You know? Not too many. Well, we're not going to have all kumbaya moments because we've got a couple other issues to get <laughs> yeah. to. Look, things have changed a lot since John Chafee was in the Senate. But what did he always say? Congress swings. It's going to go right and left, and the administration swings. Isn't it good to have somebody in the minority party? And so, I mean, I think that's an argument maybe Alec Funk could use. The problem, I think, Dan, is he's going to run into the Link Chafee problem. When he ran against Sheldon Whitehouse, he had a 65% approval rating. We talked about this last week. And people said that was when the Senate was in the balance. And they said, I love Link, but I'm not sure that I want the Senate to go. So he's going to have to really walk that line. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to somebody that worked for Governor Raimondo during her reelection campaign this week. And, and I said, how much money do you think you guys, as a campaign and as the Democrats, put behind that, that Alan Fung in a Trump hat? And he said three, four, five million dollars behind, you know, trying to convince, let's face it, low information voters that this person is too conservative for you. You're going to see the same playbook run and you're going to have that argument of, you know, like Leanne said, Rhode Island is not going to decide who the House, uh, you know, leadership is. But the narrative here will be, you know, if you vote for Alan Fung, you were voting for uh, Speaker McCarthy, you're voting for that sort of thing. And they're going to try to run a very national playbook. The challenge is, Alan Fung's a likable guy. He was more popular on his way out the door in Cranston than he was for the last, you know, seven, eight years. He's still very popular. He's going to be, it's, he's going to be very difficult to beat if he runs. You talked about the divisions in Congress. I almost wonder who would want to be a congressman these days. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, and look, this is what, this is why Bob Wagan left, you know, partially to run for the Senate. But he told me he was literally number 435 because his name was Wagan. And he was, <laughs> and he was in the, he went with the Newt Gingrich Congress, if you remember, all right. those years ago. So really, I know it's a congressional seat, it's a big deal, but if you get in there, you wonder really what you can do day to day because of those divisions, right? Right. Regardless absolutely. of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, right? Right. Well, and we've seen that because we haven't seen Rhode Island making great strides having Democrats as part of the majority party now. Um, when they were in the minority party, it still didn't benefit Rhode Island as much as it could have. How does this change the governor's race, Dan? Oh, I think it's significant uh, because I, I don't know that, that Seth Magaziner, I wouldn't certainly classify him as the favorite in that race, but he was a real factor, had raised more than a million dollars. Who does this help? Who does this hurt? I think, it, I think it helps Helena folks because I think they were kind of had the same crossover uh, base and donor base. I think she, she gets a little bit stronger. I always think for, for somebody like Dan McKee, who's never going to be you know widely popular, particularly in the Democratic primary side, I think the more candidates for him, the better. You have have one less, I think it, it hurts him the most. Uh, the, the big unanswered question is what does it mean for Nellie Gorvea? Can she come on and sort of as a two-term statewide you know, office holder, can she kind of gain a little bit of more name recognition? Um, you know, she was in the shadow of Seth to some degree. Uh, now it, it could be her moment to, to, to grab on. You know, we talk about money um, and how important that is in political races, but you know, if uh, the late Bruce Sundlin was alive, he'd tell you that, you know, it took him three times to get yeah. there. And a lot so, of money. <laughs> and so when I look at it and I see, you know, oh, Helena Folks has raised all this money and what have you, Rhode Island just kind of looked behind that, too. You know, I mean, look at even what happened in the in the Flaherty Paolino race um, for governor in the in the primary uh, that happened. And it, it wasn't the person with the, you know, right. Frank Flaherty 
was a was ahead of Joe Paolino, and Joe outspent him something like three to four times. And so, finished third. Yeah. And finished third. So you mm -hmm. just don't know how that's going to play in. I think Dan McKee is a very affable guy. He's a regular guy. Yep. Um, you know, some people call him Joe Garrahy, what have you. I, I think he's his own man. Um, he really he comes across as really caring. And for this electorate, that's important. It's really important because we're so sick of the slick um, kind of campaigns that's that are all um, you know all staged and what have you you know a couple of people said to me after the state of the state well you know he wasn't very polished I'm like isn't that nice right. that he really spoke to people he looked at the teleprompter and he said hey you know this is the way it is um, that's refreshing to a lot of people um, outside of us political pundits that look at things like that you know we've kind of Go ahead. It, it may be refreshing, but it's also indicative of kind of the B list stepping up from lieutenant governor to governor, not necessarily being prepared. Oh, I don't agree saw, with that. No, but when we saw the school choice thing this week, when they put out the proclamation that he supports school choice and then pulled that back, um, that to me just spoke to not being quite ready for uh, prime time. For prime time, yeah. So we've we've I don't know if we've joked about it, but we have remarked. The Republican Party, and I know you don't head the Republican Party, but we had Sue Sienke on here. It was going to be September, October, November, December for Republican candidate. And I wonder, as we get toward the end of January, whether the time, the clock is really running now for somebody to get out of the blocks, be able to raise money. I mean, don't you think we need to hear pretty soon? Yes, I absolutely agree that we do. Um, I have know you heard any rumblings? Can I, you? I have actually spoken with one person um, that uh, has spoken with Sue also, and they're um, trying to make the things they need to do in their life to come forward and run, and we'll see what happens. I think there was an ad in the Warwick Beacon. It was a real small <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, it said something about, uh, I don't know, I don't want to uncover it. You guys have to go look for it. But, yeah, it was a real small ad. Looking for a Republican candidate? Looking for a Republican candidate. But Sue Yankee had also said, I've got somebody who can, what, did she say something like, I can self-fund or is in a good position to go? And it makes think, like, who would that be? Yeah, we've, I feel like we've heard these rumors for a while now. <clears throat> there's, there's somebody out there that can do this. I mean, look, the, the benefit on the Republican side is if you can get through with no primary or no significant primary, you do get to start a little bit later. Don Kachiri started later than, than, than everybody else and was unknown and kind of wiped the floor with Jim but Bennett. But had a pile of dough. It had a, that's the thing, is, is the later you get into this, you know, when you don't get in the year before, it means you can't double fundraise. You can only raise $1,000, you know, from each person in, in one calendar year. So it helps to have somebody that can write, a, you know, some sort of check. I wonder now, and I worry for the Republicans, does all the focus go to CD2? And do they now just kind of forget about who, you know, who the, the best candidate is on the Republican side for governor? Faithful, uh, lively uh, viewers will know that we had Joe Palino on here uh, several months ago, and he's been beating the drum on runoff elections and making sure you get 50 percent. And now a bill's been filed by uh, Arthur Corvese. Uh, so, the, Dan, you've, you're intimately familiar with this, so set the table, but then I want to go and see the pros and cons of this. Exactly what would happen. It's aimed at Link Chafee won with f fewer than 50%, Gina Raimondo in her first race, although she got 50% the next race. I think people fundamentally think if you're <clears throat> going to win, why should you be able to win with 35%, right? It's exactly right, yeah. I mean, think about the, this is the way Boston does its its elections. The you, city elections? Yeah, this is the way they do their city wow. elections. So you have a, you know, your candidates, and you can do different ways. You can do say say it's completely nonpartisan, or or you can, you know, have Republican Leanne Senek. You could have, you know, Democrat Eva Mancuso, and just put the the names next to each other, and you end up with the 
top two vote getters advance from what's called a preliminary election to the general election. It helps you do it, it, exactly like you described. You, you don't have you know uh, Lincoln Chafee, Frank Caprio, and John Robitaille. You only would get the top two. You would have had a runoff between Chafee and Robitaille in that case. Same thing Romundo and Fung. You'd have had another uh, you know race like that. To me, I, you know, I say this from getting to make opinions now. I mean. It makes a lot of sense. I think it would make things more competitive. But that potentially could leave a Republican off the ballot, right? Absolutely. Could. If you look at this year, if there's not a strong Republican candidate, um, then you have the two top Democrats going in the race for governor. Um, I, I think that the primaries serve a purpose for the parties. And I think that's what we, the party's not going to just let that go away either, because you're putting out those people as your candidate. Um, and the Democrats, by trying, Joe Paleo, by trying to push this idea, I understand that no one wants someone elected without a majority of the votes. I, I do agree that a runoff election could be held so that when that person, with Chafee getting 36%, then you'd have an election after a few weeks following with the two top vote getters. That's but a, George, that's uh, a runoff each election. Each party comes to the table, yes, right? But think? each party is there. I, I like the runoff election. Um, the, everybody goes on the ballot. I think it should be nonpartisan because I don't see a lot of difference some days between some of the Democrats and the Republicans. On some of the, on some on, of the local on, races, too, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, Maybe put more your, so, right? Put your, put your plan out there. Um, yes, I always say I, I am a Democrat, but there's sometimes when I line up with Republicans on some issues, as we all do. So I vote for the individual, and I think most of Rhode Island does, and I think that you should have at least 50% of the vote to be governor of the state of Rhode Island. You're, you're governing for everybody. So I agree with it. I hope the bill passes. The only the only thing I get concerned about with, with a runoff after a general election, this happened obviously in Georgia last year, very high profile. You just don't get the same turnout that you get on right. election and day. I want, I want the general election where the most turnout is for the most people to vote in. But I wonder how you can make that work, to, to your point. Because I do understand the idea of having a Republican and a Democrat or whatever, the top two vote getters. Um, I don't necessarily love the idea of always having two Democrats as the, as the only two candidates to choose. But, you know, we now can, you now can vote in a, I can go and disaffiliate and vote in a Republican yeah, you have primary instead of you know? so you yeah. can vote in the primaries. Right, so I can go vote in the primaries too, and I think people do cross over. Well, I know that hurt me. Nefarious purposes well, it hurt me a lot. Years. It hurt me a lot in Cranston when I ran AG. in '98, when I ran yeah. for AG, because Cranston had a Republican, can't a big Republican race that year, and so a lot of my friends are Republicans. Went that, that way. Yeah. Had to go vote. I mean, my own godfather had to go and vote. Um, he was the mayor at the time in the Republican primary. Now my aunt and my cousin came and, and crossed over. So I think it gives the opportunity for people to go and vote for the individual. And isn't that what we want serving? We want the individual serving, not the party. And there's so many crossovers. It's not like it was in the 40s and 50s where if you were a Democrat, you checked all Straight these boxes. Line. If yeah, you were machine, a Republican, yeah. you checked all these boxes. We have, we're really a mixture right now. I think that's why we have the majority of voters in the state are registered independent. And that gives them the opportunity in those primaries to choose if they which primary they want to go and vote in. But in her but they situation, they would have. Right, they, they do have, have to choose. They could have gone, right, right, right. They could have gone into a general election and voted for the mayor and voted for me, too. You know, that's this, what I'm saying. This is a collateral you know? issue, but I've always felt, and they do this in other states, the primary should be in May or June. Yes. Because you think of that, eight week, man, who's paying attention in the summer, right? And then all of a sudden, it's the second week in September, and then you only got eight weeks. The General Assembly, and I know why they don't do this, because if they're in session, the incumbents don't want their challengers out 
banging on doors. Is it as simple as, do you see any path to getting a primary change to the spring or early summer? So here? I agree with you that they should do it. No, be, and, and I agree with why they won't because of that reason. <laughs> but you're exactly right. I mean, think about this. You know, I've covered Pro the city of Providence forever. Providence mayor gets decided in a 24, 25,000 vote Democratic right. primary every single time. Right. And then the general double that will vote. Yeah. And it won't matter because they're pro almost certainly will not be a strong Republican or independent candidate. Yeah. All it's right. a problem. To, to be continued. Hey, big news with, uh, hey, you would think that I booked this just because I knew that this settlement was going to happen. Folks, if you saw the news, $114 million settlement over the opioid case. Our own Eva Mancuso right in the middle of it. <laughs> Set the table for those who don't know. You were the attorney working behind the scenes on this. So tell me about right. it. Right. So um, there were two, there's two parts of the litigation. Um, the attorney general's office and Motley Rice had the state case, and I represented 33 of the 39, and then ultimately all 39 cities and towns um, in the municipal litigation, which is going on right now uh, through the multi-district litigation in federal court in Ohio. So it's the national lawsuit. And what was uh, the suit aimed at? So here, these are all, the one now that we just settled this with the distributors, the big the big three distributors, McKesson, Cardinal Health, and, Amer and American Virgin. So basically what happened is, um, it through the, the state suit, they had a trial date coming up, and there's no better time to settle a case than when there's a jury sitting in the box. Uh, January 4th was the trial date. So uh, sometime in November, we began negotiations. To, for Under the national settlement, uh, in order to get, and it's a 308-page settlement agreement, so please bear with me. Uh, You're not going to read all 308 pages. I'm not. She seems to the, have them. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. I've got a one-pager, all right? <laughs> Tough crowd, I'll tell you. And you wonder why I won't run for Congress. <laughs> so anyway, uh, what happens is the, to get the money, all 114 million, the Attorney General of the State of Rhode Island had to have all the cities and towns agree to participate in that. Wow. So it really gave us a seat at the table. And the most important part, uh, it's an 80-20 split. So 80% of the money will go into an abatement pot. And that'll be supervised and, and advised by an advisory committee. And there'll be equal representations from the cities and towns and the state. Um, I always felt from the beginning, and I started this going from town council to town council, Democrat and Republican, to get hired um, as their counsel in this case about three years ago. And the most important part of the whole thing is that the cities and towns have a seat at the table because too often it's a top-down decision. Uh, let me tell you what will be best for your community uh, by the state. And it, it has nothing to do with Governor McKee or whether it's Governor Raimondo, what have you. It's just the way it works, right? You have people in Providence that, that are um, looking at what should happen. And then you have the mayors on who are boots on the ground that really can happen. So that's that's the uh, the gist of the settlement. The other piece that's really important for the public is a lot of times in these settlements, a big chunk comes out for attorney's fees and costs. It's not. We negotiated a separate pot for that. So every person is going to get the exact money that You get free concerted pizza for a year? Is that your cut? <laughs> uh, no. I get paid. I just don't get paid out of this money. Well, I think it's great news. And, and the, the question I guess I have for you, Eva, is there's more to come, right? I sure. mean, there's still, are we talking, are, will we see a bigger settlement? You know, are we talking another $100 million, or is it going to be a little bit smaller than that? Uh, we're, we're hoping it's going to be more than that. Wow. And it's uh, the state has not filed yet, but we have, the municipalities have all filed um, against uh, the 
providers, CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid. And I can tell you nationally, the, the jury verdicts are, are split on it. Some places, you can hear the mantra uh, that have come out recently about, hey, all we do is fill the pills that the doctors fill. And that argument in some of the more conservative states has worked. Uh, not so much in the others. So it, that's still, we're still in, uh, in trial with them and we'll, we're moving forward. That's all being done out of Ohio, out of the uh, federal district litigation there and our national council who I work along with. Well, I hope you can enlighten me on this because I understand you know, we're getting settlement money to abate this, to mitigate the, the damage from the opioid crisis. What are we doing to prevent it from going forward? Where doctors are still prescribing OxyContin. The FDA has not repealed that approval that was so key in getting doctors to give those prescriptions. How do we how do we get that changed? That's a great that's a great great question and the difference is oxycontin has a place in this country and in medicine. The question is what's the place? And now as part of the settlement, the attorney general did negotiate that there has to be notice when you have an uptake in pills and prescriptions. Remember, the first thing we did with opioids 10 years ago to go after this was to go after the docs. We went after the docs, the docs you know, got fined or what have you, and then a new doc came in. So that's when we said the only way to get to this is to get to the root of the problem. The other half, you talk about prevention, and that's where the money that's going to the cities and towns. My mayors and town counts and, and town administrators are saying, the small amount that's coming directly to us, we can use this for prevention and start going out. So you, Mayor De Silva just did it outside of this, just this week. He actually hired um, a social worker to come in to do that preventative work. All right, let's, uh, we, we can continue this afterwards. I'm sure we will. Uh, let's do outrages and or kudos. Leanne, what do you have this week? Well, my outrage is with the Biden administration. Um, we're one year in and we have record inflation, not seen uh, that high in four decades. Uh, just. Everyone you talk to is so frustrated going to the grocery store, going to the gas pumps, um, just trying to provide for their families, and it's making it very difficult to do that. Um, the border crisis is just spiraling out of control. We're talking about the opioid crisis. There's fentanyl coming over that border. There's human trafficking going on. All of those things that could be lit mitigated if we had border security um, and we're just not investing in that we're not following through on those things we have over 500,000 people that are considered gutaways um, in the past year and they're coming into this country and they're being disseminated everywhere here and it's putting a burden on our infrastructure on our health department on our education and it's things that we can't control as a government but we should be able to control if we control that border um, foreign policy failure the botched rollout uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan which only you know uh, emboldened Russia and China at this point now we're looking at the Ukraine coming in and uh, all these things going on there's just so much this, this, you're this setting the table we're gonna do a <laughs> yeah. lively extra okay. I'm making the call right now we're doing an online bonus segment so we'll stay tuned for that but that sets the table for part of it Dan what do you have you know, I got to tell you, I'm so relieved to have made it here today uh, because two weeks ago, according to the Providence City Council, the world Providence was going to become completely <laughs> lawless because of a vaccine mandate imposed by Mayor Lors, and the world was going to end. I wasn't going to be able to drive from Mount Pleasant across the city to sit here. No and police to be able to. They uh, all said that. Two weeks later, 95% of the city uh, of city employees are vaccinated. Police were, I think, down to 55, 56 people. To the credit of the Providence Police Union, they've been working behind the scenes to get this done. The mayor actually got this one right, and the city council was absolutely ridiculous. All right. Eva, you get the last minute. 
I'm really disappointed in Nicole Alexander Scott. And it's got nothing to do with the money. It's just, how do you leave? You're a professional. How do you leave in the middle of a pandemic? Your contract's up this spring. How do you leave? How do you give two weeks notice? And I understand she needs a break, so take the month off and say, listen, I need a break. But to leave and, and then hold the state hostage um, on, the, on the money pot, I don't care if it's $10. Um, I was really disappointed in that. I've been very respectful of her. I thought that she did a, a wonderful job uh, reporting, what have you. How, how do you walk away? I think there's a story. Uh, we may never get to it, but I think there's a story behind the story. Yeah, I do, that too. We may not know. But I, I agree, the optics, not great. All right, folks, uh, that is it for our on-air portion, but we have a lot of national issues to cover, as outlined by Leanne. So stick with us right now. We're going to uh, go online to ripbs.org slash lively and we'll do our online bonus segment. For the rest of you, Dan and Eva and Leanne, yes. first-time panelists here, right? That's right. All right. Uh, folks, for the rest of you, come back next week, and we'll have the very latest. It is a dizzying uh, news cycle, and we will have it covered for you next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. experiment is generously underwritten by hi I'm John Hazen White jr. for over 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS